The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome back my guest from last week, Ms. Judy Simon. She is a fellow registered dietitian who specializes in nutrition counseling for individuals, couples, and families who are focused on reproductive nutrition. In other words, she is a nationally recognized expert on nutrition and fertility. I heard her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Washington, D.C. in October of 2018. I thought she'd make a great guest. She was. Last week, we spoke about fertility and diet. We specifically spoke about her food and fertility program in which couples come in and get community support. They have a safe group where they can build community, reduce stress, focus on mindful eating, she also spoke about healthy diet in terms of fertility, and we're going to be reviewing what we didn't talk about last time. We spoke about vitamin D. We spoke about prenatal supplements. We spoke about soy. We spoke about environmental toxins and plastic and other endocrine disruptors. We spoke about pesticide residues, reducing fertility. We spoke about mind-body nutrition caffeine and alcohol, and where we left off was marijuana. And so we're going to jump right in there. Judy, welcome. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Well, this is a wonderful part two. And if our listeners did not catch part one, they can do so at KOPN.org, as well as Public Radio Exchange. When we left off, we were talking about the environmental factors and things that we like to do recreationally, the things we like to eat, our lifestyle habits. And with more states having both medical and recreational marijuana available, there are certainly marijuana-laced edibles as well as marijuana cigarettes. And it interested me because you mentioned that marijuana impacts fertility. What do you tell your clients about this? Yeah, it's a great topic. So I live in the state and work in the state of Washington where marijuana is legal and you can buy edibles and it's very accessible. And so now people are really sharing with us that they are using them. And on the male side, our andrologists are just starting to really study it. So they're finding that especially with the men who have excessive use of marijuana, it can really have a negative impact on the quality of the sperm and the number of sperm. And so I think it's a stay tuned. Um, yes, it's being researched, which is a really important topic. So we can give people some quantitative advice. So I usually recommend, I tell men, it's probably not going to improve their sperm count. So they really want to be a little bit more judicious about its use. And I haven't really seen much research on the female side, more on the male side. So I think that for a couple or individuals that are, are considering conceiving, it's probably the more conservative answer right now would be to limit the use. We don't know if there is a healthy amount to have or if maybe there's even a benefit. I think so far that the research has been more negative on the sperm side. Mm, that's very interesting. And so let's talk then, let's just refresh our listeners about alcohol mm -hmm. because it seems that in terms of recreational drugs that are easily accessible and used 
more and more socially. We've got alcohol, we've got marijuana. Does alcohol affect sperm in a similar fashion? It seems that in moderate levels, which may be defined as two or less drinks per day for male, that there is probably not an impact. And we can look at studies where they look at consumption and they look at sperm quality, but that doesn't always look at outcome in live birth rates. The Earth study, which we talked about last time, right. is looking at intake. And so far, they're finding that with moderate drinking, they're not seeing from men a negative impact on live birth rates. And that would be less than 12 grams of alcohol a day. And with women, what's a little bit more difficult, especially for women who are on a long fertility journey, and maybe it's five years before they conceive, you know, they're kind of wondering, do I ever get to have a glass of wine again? Is it safe? Am I putting my potential baby at risk? And the hard thing is that if a woman does conceive and she's been drinking, we don't know a safe amount of alcohol as far as reducing risk to the fetus. But research in the Earth study showed that women who were conceiving with IVF treatments, what they had to drink for the year before, if it was in moderation, did not have an impact on the outcome of that fertility treatment. Mm. So again, I think we want to be a little bit more conservative on our alcohol recommendations because if a woman does spontaneously conceive and she's been drinking, that could have a potential impact to the baby's early development. Absolutely. And we should just remind our listeners that the EARTH study, it stands for Environment and Reproductive Health. It's an ongoing prospective cohort study that was started in 2006 and aimed at identifying determinants of fertility among couples who were presenting at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Do you want to say anything more about the EARTH study? Well, I think that the importance of the study is prior to it, we just haven't really had much data to tell people, hmm, what makes a difference? And so I feel yeah. so much advice has been given without a lot of science to back it. And you do have to remember that these people are going through fertility treatment. So there's other variables. And one is that this could be an older cohort, an older population needing some assistance with fertility, but also that they do have some fertility issues. What we really don't have yet is for the general population, including those people who are not having necessarily any known fertility issues, would the data give us the same answers? And I don't really think we have strong data on that yet. And it's hard to do that ethically. You know, we can't do a sure. study where we ask half the women to drink and the other half not to drink that are trying to start families. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a big fan of erring on the side of safety, especially when it comes to sure. all things related to children. Well, I do want to let our listeners know that the reason why I thought it was so important to bring you back, Judy, is because infertility affects 15 to 25% of couples trying to achieve pregnancy, and that is reflective of all Western countries. So I think yes. that the topic of if women are having problems conceiving, it is stressful, as we talked about last week, and what can we do to have a greater likelihood of conceiving and having a healthy pregnancy and baby. So you have been asked many times about fertility. You've developed a food for fertility 
series with the wonderful Dr. Angela Thayer at the Seattle Reproductive Medicine, and you did that about six years ago. And I wonder if we could dive a little bit deeper into some of those dietary recommendations. Should we talk about fat first? Sure. Well, fat makes food taste good, so that's important, right? Right. And so we all like it for flavor, and we talked about vitamin D last time. And in order to absorb and use vitamin D in our bodies, we need to have adequate fat in our meals. So it's truly essential for that. And there are several steps in egg development and sperm development that healthy fat is needed. And we're starting to see more data, more dietary studies. And we have found that when we look at women, that trans fatty acid, nothing good has come from that. And thank goodness we have less available in our diet. But it had been shown that women who had more trans fatty acids, and that would be those partially hydrogenated fats that were used a lot in processed foods, cookies, biscuit mixes, things like that, that trans fatty intake was actually associated with reduced fertility. And that was in a preconception cohort, the PRESTO study. In some studies, the more recent studies were not seeing as much of an impact. And that's, I think, because we've reduced so much of the trans fatty acids that are available at the grocery store and in our diets. And it's now labeled and people are more aware of it and less products are produced with it. Right. And then also there were studies with sperm quality that uh, higher trans fatty acid intake was also predictive of poor sperm quality and poor fertility. So definitely we're going to kick out and reduce those trans fatty acids. Yeah. And it's great that we have labels now, although we should let our listeners know that you can have a zero grams of trans fat on the food label on that nutrition facts panel when a food does indeed contain, is it 0.5 or less? Yes, you can round it down. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to look and see what's the source of fat. You know, where is it coming from? Is it coming from olive oil? Is it coming from a partially hydrogenated fat? Absolutely. Right. That's a really good point. Okay. Well, let's go through some of the other factors. I know like in a broad way, we could say Mm -hmm. that the Mediterranean diet was recommended during your talk as just good general guidelines in terms of how to eat well for fertility. What are the other aspects of that diet that we should know know about? Yes. And I think you bring up a good point is that nutrition, the nutrition recommendations or guidelines that are good for everyone for just healthy living and preventing chronic disease. So that means preventing things like diabetes and cancer are actually the same things that are helpful for promoting healthy fertility. Right. Which is lovely because it doesn't mean you have to eat different than your friends or your family because it's really the backbone of the same type of healthy diet. Well, I thought it was interesting. One of the things that you had mentioned in your talk was that trans fat and diets that are high in saturated Mm. fat led to poorer semen quality, reduced testosterone and testicular volume. And I think about men, young men who are following Mm. like a ketogenic diet where they're eating a lot of fat, a lot of meat in efforts to lose weight, but I think about what those fat levels might be doing to other systems in their body. And I think that's a really good point. I I haven't seen any data published specifically looking at keto, but for example, I just met with a, I wouldn't call him too youngish, maybe a a 40-ish age man who had 
big guy, but had very low testosterone levels. And he was sent to me to help him with his diet, low libido, low testosterone. And he was basically following exactly that, pretty much a keto diet. He was working out, not losing weight, eating a diet that was high in saturated fat, high in meat, and very low in carb. And he felt pretty awful and it wasn't helping his testosterone. Mm. So we're working on making some of those modifications more towards a plant-based, more Mediterranean diet to see if we can help to bring up his testosterone level because he would like to be a father. So working on that. So yeah, I do have concerns. And when I do have patients that are coming to me specifically for fertility and they're having a very high fat, high protein diet, I try to share with them, I don't belittle them, but I try to share with them Wow, there's so many benefits of whole grains, fruits, vegetables, fish, other foods that you're missing out on if you eat such a strict type of a diet. Yeah, absolutely. um, Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about other factors of a fertility diet that you would like to see people focus on. Okay. Well, one thing I want to make sure is many of my patients are trying to lose weight. And so I want to make sure that they're just not looking at calories, but they're looking for what's coming from their food, focusing more on nutrient density than caloric density. I don't want them to pick up a label and read how many calories it is. I'd rather they care like, hey, what are you getting from that food? So for example, if they're looking at maybe whole grain bread and they're choosing between two that uh, different calories, I'm like, let's see what's in that bread. Oh, it's 100% whole wheat. It's got a lot of fiber. It's got whole grains. That's great. Um, How are you using that? So making sure that they're focusing on the quality of their food and that they're really providing themselves with enough food throughout the day so they can be physically active and they could lead the type of lives that they want to and not feel like they're on a rigid type of a diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's good advice. Nutrient density is one of our main messages. We are at the halfway point, so I just want to take a break. Remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Ms. Judy Simon. She is a fellow registered dietitian, only her specialty is nutrition and fertility. I heard her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting this past fall in Washington, D.C., presentation was excellent, compassionate, and I thought most worthy of sharing. If you missed part one last week, please go to kopn.org or Public Radio Exchange, search for Judy Simon, and you can get the first part of our talk. Okay, Judy, let's jump into something that we speak a lot about with regard to pregnancy for many years, and that is folic acid. What does it do? Why is it so important? And where do we find it? Oh, good questions. Okay. So when you think folic acid, I always tell people, first think green leafy vegetables. So if you're eating broccoli or kale or spinach, you're going to get some good sources of folic acid. And you're also going to find it in fortified whole grains, which is something, fortification that we do in the United States. And you're also going to find it in beans and lentils and pulses. And the important thing that folic acid does as a B vitamin First of all, it's very important that three months prior to conception, a woman has adequate folate because that helps with the rapidly dividing cells that produce the neural tubes of the fetus. So very important that a woman has it on board. But the other thing that's important for fertility is we're seeing higher fertility rates with women who actually are taking a prenatal supplement with folic acid. So we know there's several steps 
in the conception process that require folic acid for cell division with the developing embryo. So we do need that for healthy sperm quality and the actual fertilization process during fertility. Mm-hmm. Now there's folate and there's folic acid. One is naturally occurring. The other we're going to find in the supplement. But essentially both, right. both of those two compounds function the same way in the body. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And actually we absorb the moist synthetic form that's actually fortified in food or in our supplements is actually absorbed well. And one concern I have when I'm working with a couple is if they choose to be gluten-free, either because they need to for celiac disease or maybe other digestive problems, I want to make sure that they're getting enough folic acid. Because if they're not eating fortified grains and maybe they're eating more rice or potatoes or things like that, I want to make sure that there's adequate folic acid in their diet and encourage them to eat grains that may be gluten-free but also contain folic acid. And this also reflects back to our earlier discussion about the keto diet, which restricts grains. It does. And so that's a concern that I have too as far as are they getting enough Right, Um, because I would hate for someone to miss out on fertility just because of folic acid, which is so easy to get from food and easy to get from supplementation. Right. One of the reasons for infertility may be the polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. Mm -hmm. What percentage of your clients have that disorder? Probably about half, Mm. about 50%. Yeah, it's the number one reason a woman goes to a fertility clinic is she's not ovulating. She has an ovulatory disorder, and it is frequently PCOS, and it is often not diagnosed until she ends up at the fertility clinic. Mm. And some of that might be because when she was 16 or 17 years old and she was having irregular cycles, her care provider suggested, well, you could go on the pill and you could balance your hormones and you won't have to worry about not having cycles or having irregular cycles And maybe she doesn't go off of oral contraceptives until she's 30, 35, 38, and finds out she's not ovulating, she's not having regular cycles. Mm, Interesting. So oftentimes with PCOS, we see issues with weight, and we know that Mm -hmm. weight or excessive amount of body fat Mm -hmm. is related to problems with fertility. So you mentioned Prior to being on air, we were talking about Mm -hmm. inositol, I-N-O-S-I-T-O-L, which is Mm -hmm. part of the B vitamin family. Why is that important and why do you recommend that? So if I have a woman with PCOS with irregular cycles, we are trying to get her cycles regular so that she will ovulate. Most often, about 80% of these women have some degree of insulin resistance. So we want to do everything we can with nutrition, with healthy lifestyle, with movement, activity, to reduce the insulin resistance. That will, in turn, lower her testosterone levels, and she will be able to begin to ovulate, so balance those hormones. So inositol is interesting because it's found in both plants and animals. Our body actually produces some, but It actually comes in two forms, and it's in foods like buckwheat, so like soba noodles would have inositol. But a woman can take this supplement twice a day, and it's a combination of these two isomers, very easy to take in powder with water. And after about three months, it can be helpful in improving um, the sensitivity to the cells to insulin, reduce her insulin resistance, help her to ovulate. So it's kind of a 
can be either a more natural way to help someone conceive or it can be sort of an assistance if they're going through more of an assisted reproductive technology as you know, uterine insemination or in vitro fertilization. And I've been helping people use this for probably about five or six years and seen some really good success with it. So is there a microgram or milligram level that you recommend? Yeah, we recommend, I believe it's 2,000 milligrams twice a day. We like a 40 to 1 ratio, so they're actually taking 2,000 milligrams of the myo-inositol, and I think it's about 40 milligrams of the dechiroinositol, which is another form. So there's a lot of good information on the PCOS website, or people can definitely contact me about that. But a lot of good research that has been out that has found them to be relatively inexpensive in the world of fertility to be helpful with PCOS management, which can help with fertility. Is there a good PCOS website that you would recommend? Yes. My colleague, Angela Grassi, has a wonderful one. She's a dietitian who specializes in it, and it is PCOSnutrition.com. Great. We'll make sure that people have a link to that because I think what happens so often when we go online to search for information, it's overwhelming. You don't know who to believe. We want to make sure women are working with their physicians in partnership for any kind of changes that they're going to make to their diet. Always let your healthcare provider know and ask to work with a registered dietitian as well, especially one like yourself who has really been focused on this area for years. Let's talk more about diet. You also focus on glycemic load. What is that? Mm-hmm. Why is it important? Well, some of the data from the Nurses Health Study, which was a cohort of nurses that have been followed for decades, and it's really a nice group to study because every year they share their question about their dietary habits, their exercise, their health. And also they ask them about fertility. You know, have you conceived? Are you trying to conceive? And that data was first shared with us in about 2007, 2008 with the Harvard group. And they did find 10 different health habits were predictive of higher rates of fertility. And one of those was consuming a diet with a lower glycemic load. And basically what that came down to in food talk is those women who were, for example, their carbohydrate sources were coming more from whole grains, beans, vegetables, fruits rather than from simple sugars. So that, I think, really corresponds with probably the number of women who have PCOS or prediabetes. They were healthier based on a lot of the food choices that they were making. So the decrease in simple sugars and the increase in more natural sources of carbohydrates would give them a lower glycemic load. Mm-hmm. And again, this goes right in line with an overall Mediterranean diet, if a person were to say, gosh, you know, there are so many recommendations. How do I keep them all straight? Mm -hmm. Start with the Mediterranean Mm -hmm. diet. It is probably Mm -hmm. the best dietary pattern to follow, as you mentioned earlier, not just for fertility, but also for preventing chronic disease. Absolutely. And I think, too, we focused a lot on, I don't want to make assumptions that everybody has a terrible diet that I see for fertility. It really isn't. It, It really kind of varies like it does for anything else. Some people just need a little bit more guidance or some need the assurance that, hey, you know what, you are doing a great job with your diet. Work with your team to see what other lifestyles, you know, stress management, yoga would be helpful. But I do want to mention, and I know you heard me in October speak about this at Fancy, 
that I do see a significant percentage of women who are actually not eating enough. And those are the women who may not be ovulating because they do not have enough available energy for their reproductive access to be doing its job. Okay, so it basically shuts down. So an example might be I might have a woman in Seattle who is running, training for marathons, eating very clean, feeling very in control of her eating. Right. Doesn't necessarily have an eating disorder, but is, you know, pretty strict and stringent and has been trying to get pregnant and is not ovulating. She's referred to me and in our assessment I realized that although she's eating a lot of good food, she's not eating enough food. So the body says, well, if there's not enough energy, guess what? Your reproductive access is really on the bottom of your priority. You need energy for your heart, your lungs, your gut, your kidneys. And kind of the last place we're going to give you energy is your reproductive access. So there's some time that it's a lack of available energy. We still want to have good food, nutrient-dense food, but enough of it. I don't want to come across that, oh, every woman needs to lose weight, because that's certainly not true. But it's really the quality and what is a woman's individual needs and and really a man's individual needs, because there are some men with very low testosterone levels, and that can be from being excessively overweight, but also from underweight and not having enough energy. So I think we have to look at both sides of the energy equation. Exactly. Well, I thought it was interesting if we look at what's happening to sperm over time, sperm counts are going down. And part of your talk that you gave in Washington, D.C. had to do with what are the environmental toxins that are also affecting fertility. And I think that's Mm -hmm. worth reviewing again. And while I realize that organic food probably costs a little bit more at the grocery store, Mm -hmm. oftentimes it does, the cost of fertility treatments is also extremely expensive. So, Yes, it's time and money too, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And so we're starting to see some studies that men who've had more exposure to pesticides are seeing lower rates of sperm and poorer quality of sperm. So that's something significant that we're beginning to study. Uh, We're also finding that men who have more exposure to phthalates and BPA bisphenols, so maybe they're having more exposure to plastics, heating up food in plastics, can have a negative impact on their sperm. And it's also important to mention that just as women are aging in fertility and having children later, so are men. And so that can be another thing that is contributing to lower quantity of sperm is also aging. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. People are having children at a later age, and so that makes an impact also on women. So women have their set number of eggs, but as they age, especially after 35 the number and the quality really, really drops down, which is why we see more women with more choices for their reproduction. So some women are actually starting to save their eggs at a younger age. Maybe they're not ready to have children. And so I help a lot of those women with optimizing their health so that when they have an egg retrieval to save and freeze those eggs for future fertilization and implantation, they want to save really healthy, good quality eggs. So I may see women, maybe late 20s, early 30s, who are busy in their career or life and aren't ready, but they want to save their eggs. And then we also see people who freeze egg and sperm because they have a health concern like oncology, and maybe they're going to go through cancer treatment, so they want to save their eggs, save their sperm. So there's other reasons that people may delay their fertility. Interesting. Well, Judy, our time is up. 
But I want to thank you very much for coming back and giving us a part two of this very important and sensitive topic of nutrition and fertility. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Judy Simon, registered dietitian specializing in nutrition and fertility. Judy, give me your website one more time and we'll let people know where they can find more information from you. It is www.mind-body-nutrition.com. Nutrition.com. Well, we will make sure and provide that link along with the show, too. Okay. Thank you so much. 